Tonight, there was frightening testament to how dangerous this heat wave has become. As busloads of children are overcome by the sweltering temperatures, many rush to hospitals. Firefighters train the cooling water of their hoses on some 40 heat-exhausted children and adults outside the Jackson Park Fieldhouse on the south side. In the summer of 1995, a natural disaster struck Chicago. A heat wave so hot that it warped train rails, caused cars to break down in the streets, and roads to buckle. This was the deadliest heat wave on record in the United States. The heat wave caught both residents and city workers unprepared. Hospitals were packed, emergency crews understaffed, and patches of the power grid failed. By the time it was over, approximately 740 people had lost their lives. Many of those who died were elderly people who lived alone. But it doesn't stop there. Maybe not surprising, but when looking more closely, those who died were disproportionately women, black, and residents from the poorest neighborhoods in the city. The belated responses to the heat wave from firefighters, paramedics, and police officers to mitigate the problem proved largely ineffective, leading to the heavy death toll. In addition to the ineffective government responses, there was a particular problem in Chicago, one that has persisted for a long time because Chicago is one of the most dangerous cities in the United States. So dangerous, in fact, that many elderly, particularly those in low socioeconomic neighborhoods, opted to stay indoors with their windows and doors shut during the heat wave because they were afraid to leave their homes for fear of their safety. This is a story about the fear of violence and the risk to community safety that resulted from the extreme heat and ineffective government responses. Welcome everyone to our podcast associated with our project Mapping the Intersection of Climate Change and Community Safety. Thank you for tuning in with us today. And this podcast is supposed to be your one-stop shop to fill you in on the upcoming workshops where we'll be collectively identifying how climate change hazards may impact community safety, and that is crime and violence. It includes everything, or at least a lot of what you need to know about climate change and community safety and adaptation to participate in the upcoming workshops. My name is Roxanne, and here with me is my co-host Felix and our guests, Christine and Oishin. And let's just dive right into it, starting with Felix. Can you tell us a little bit about how this project came to be? A number of years ago, I had a conversation with some violence prevention staff from the World Health Organization. At the end of the conversation, I asked if they knew anyone who had been working on the link between climate change and violence. The reason I made the connection in my head was because I had spent a good part of my PhD work on the issue of climate change, and I worked in community safety. And I was trying to conceptualize if there was a link more like what kind of link there was between climate change and violence or crime. But I had come up pretty empty-handed. So they set up an introduction with Robert Muga from the Igarapa Institute. And during the call with Robert, um, Robert and I marveled at the fact that there is really a lack of research. About a year later, when COVID-19 struck, I realized how unprepared we were. And it reminded me of the conversation I had with Robert thinking about the link between climate change and violence and crime. So I was interested in exploring an application some more. And once you, Roxanne, put together the proposal, 
the Social Science and Humanities Research Council was pretty quick to fund this. So here we are. So what I'm hearing is that the issue of climate change and safety has been present for a while, but it seems like there's much more that can be done to tackle the issue. So that begs the question, what makes this project different? Yes, it's true. There has been a lot of work done in the area of mitigation and adaptation of climate change. Many countries, number of regions and communities have developed adaptation and vulnerability plans, but not plans that explicitly consider violence and crime. As you heard in the introduction that played at the beginning, failure to adequately plan for all eventualities related to crime and violence in the aftermath of natural disasters can lead to disastrous public safety implications. And we would propose that many of the impacts associated with various climate change hazards can create conditions that would see an increase in crime and violence. With this realization in mind, we felt that the best way to address this gap is to bring together experts and relevant stakeholders to begin exploring some of the potential connections between climate change and community safety. These conversations and the information we hope to collect will serve as the foundation to support evidence-based decision-making and adaptation planning that will address effects of climate change on violence and foster community safety. This project stand, these workshops are just the beginning of what we strongly believe is an important area for both research and practice in order to avoid circumstances such as those that occurred with the 1995 Chicago heat wave that you heard at the outset. Right. We're collaborating with people from various backgrounds who will be bringing in their own experiences and expertise. But we recognize that most of us are only bringing one form of understanding and expertise. That is, some are climate change experts, others are crime prevention experts, and some are experts at working with advocating for or supporting particular communities, that is, communities that already experience increased levels of vulnerability. And this is vulnerability that may be further increased due to the impacts of climate change. If we continue with the example of the heat waves in Chicago, the residents who died from that heat wave were disproportionately poor women and Black residents. And this is why our conversation about climate change and community safety must be a collaborative one. Understanding the risks and the vulnerabilities associated with this issue involves the expertise of people from all these different backgrounds. Yes, but let's take a step back. Before we can bring aspects of climate change and community safety together, let's first discuss each of these separately, beginning with climate change. To have the discussion, we've invited Christine to talk about climate change and in particular, the human impacts of climate change. The water commissioner today just held a news conference just moments ago. It ended. He fell just short of calling this a water pressure crisis, saying as many as 3,000 people illegally opened up fire hydrants today. That caused a severe water pressure stain strain rather throughout the city. He warns that today's problem will be tomorrow's problem if that doesn't stop. The 1995 Chicago heat wave is more than a story of poor government response. Residents desperate and without any support, opened fire hydrants around the city to keep cool. More than 3,000 hydrants around Chicago were opened by young residents living in neighborhoods with very few public spaces that had air conditioning. These residents were simply trying to keep cool. 
but the resultant drop in water pressure from the open hydrants caused water outages to buildings in the surrounding areas, along with the loss of power. In an attempt to combat the issue, the police announced that anyone found tampering with the hydrants would be arrested and fined. Nonetheless, when the city dispatched emergency crews to seal the hydrants, they were met with resistance as people threw bricks and rocks to keep them away. This is why Eric Klinenberg, the author of Heat Waves, a social autopsy of disaster in Chicago, calls the story of the Chicago heat waves a social disaster. This story highlights the consequences of poor adaptation planning and the human impact it has on violence and safety. Welcome, Christine. So let's begin with an overview of climate change, specifically a discussion of some of the climate change hazards that are going to be featured in the upcoming workshop discussions. Thank you for having me. So research has suggested that as the average global temperature increases, which is referred to as global warming, acute climate hazards such as heat waves and floods will increase in frequency and severity, and chronic hazards such as droughts and rising sea levels will increase as well. So there are five climate change hazards that we have identified to discuss in this project. They are global temperature rise, changes in snow and ice, sea level rise, and changes in precipitation, as well as more intense and frequent extreme weather events. Okay, great. Let's begin our discussion then by speaking about global temperature rise. So this is something many of us are likely familiar with. Our planet's global temperature has increased over the last few decades, and this trend is projected to continue even with mitigation measures such as reducing greenhouse gas emissions. For example, record high temperatures were documented in the recent years, where 9 of the 10 warmest years happened within the last 10 years. Globally, 2020 was the warmest year on record, tying 2016, which was the previous record. This increase in temperatures contributes to warming oceans, melting ice, and snow, which affect precipitation patterns and sea levels, and the severity of hurricanes. These effects of increasing average temperature and extreme heat events will be more severe in urban areas, which already tend to be warmer than surrounding rural locations because of a phenomenon called the urban heat island effect. Can you tell us what is the urban heat island effect? So the urban heat islands are built up areas that are hotter than nearby rural areas. For instance, for a city with a million or more people, the average air temperature can be 1 to 3 degrees warmer than surrounding areas. So this happens because the paved surfaces and closely packed buildings in urban centers are more effective at amplifying and trapping heat than natural ecosystems, as well as rural landscapes where trees and vegetation provide shade and air cooling through evaporation. Furthermore, cities and towns generate heat from sources like furnaces, vehicles, and air conditioners. Okay, tell us about glacial retreat. Glacial retreat refers to the melting of glaciers and ice in the Arctic. So the effects of climate change on the Arctic seem to be happening earlier and are more extreme than the effects in the rest of the world. 
For example, research has documented rapid changes in temperature, precipitation rates, and humidity in the Arctic. So let's discuss rising sea levels next. This is the result of glacial retreat and ice melting, right? The rise in sea level could lead to higher tides and increased risk of coastal flooding, submergence, and coastal erosion. For example, in coastal regions like Nova Scotia, there have been records of higher tides and sea levels, and these were documented between 2014 and 2017. So 70% of the world's coastlines are projected to experience a sea level change. This will lead to coastal systems and low-lying areas experiencing adverse impacts such as submergence, coastal flooding, and coastal erosion. And all of this is also affecting precipitation patterns? So models of climate change project that changes in precipitation patterns will not be uniformly distributed. Some regions will experience increases in precipitation, while others will experience decreases. For instance, in Canada, the annual mean of precipitation could increase up to 7% by the end of the 21st century. However, in other regions, for example, South Europe, there is an expected decrease in precipitation. And then lastly, we have extreme weather, right? Yes, extreme weather events are expected to become more intense and severe and possibly more frequent. So these extreme weather events include flooding, droughts, heat waves, wildfires, storms, and hurricanes, as well as storm surges. So already we have experienced changes in many extreme weather events that scientists have linked to human influences. So let's look at droughts. The combination of decreased rainfall and increased hot temperature poses a high risk to more droughts. This could become amplified by the reduction in soil moisture in the summer, for areas with an increased risk of precipitation, there's also an expected increase of stronger and more intense hurricanes. So coastal regions in the U.S. and Western Europe in particular are at an increased risk of hurricane-induced rainfall. In the context of this project, extreme weather is a big concern. You know, most of these stories that we've shared so far and the ones that we will continue to share are often a result of extreme weather. Yes, and what we have to highlight is that climate change effects described before pose risks for a wide range of negative consequences. So these could include consequences to humans, human systems, and societal development. So they may impact food security, natural resources, the ecosystem, human health, livelihoods, migration, security, infrastructure, and economic growth. Right. And now that we have this high-level understanding of climate hazards, we can begin to connect the dots between climate change and community safety. Well, there's simply no way of underestimating the fire threat Victoria is facing over the next 24 hours or so. During Saturday, a gale force north wind will combine with extreme heat and that's not a good combination in terms of fire potential. And fire authorities are warning the public to prepare for the worst. During the week of January 28, 2009, southeastern Australia saw record-breaking temperatures, with temperatures soaring above 40 degrees Celsius. By February 7th, with winds continuing to rise, fire threats loomed over the horizon. 
A series of bushfires ignited across the state of Victoria, with as many as 400 individual fires recorded. 173 people lost their lives to the fire, and 3,500 buildings were damaged or destroyed. The bushfires destroyed communities and left many homeless. While the loss and destruction associated with the bushfires were devastating, they are only one part of a story. Years after the fires, studies emerged reporting an increase in violence in areas most affected by the disaster. In particular, one study found that 7.4% of women in high-affected regions reported experiencing gender-based violence. Another study, interviewing women workers in Victoria, found that over half of the participants reported an increase in domestic violence. This is far from an isolated incident. Reports following other natural disasters, such as Hurricane Katrina in the United States, the 2011 earthquake in Japan, and the Canterbury earthquake in New Zealand also indicate an increase in domestic and family violence. Displacement, unemployment, increased alcohol and substance use, trauma and grief, as well as gender roles and expectations may all play part in contributing to the problem. Now that we have a good understanding about the impacts of climate change, we're ready to begin our discussion on how climate change affects community safety, specifically crime and violence. Roxanne is here with me now to have this conversation. First, Roxanne, I think we should try starting by defining these terms. I agree. <laughs> Firstly, the World Health Organization defines violence as the intentional use of physical force or power, threatened or actual, against oneself, against a group, or against a community that either results in or has a high likelihood of resulting in injury, death, psychological harm, maldevelopment, or deprivation. And when we speak about violence, we can further break this down into three categories. We have interpersonal violence, we have self-directed violence, and collective violence. And for the purpose of this project, we're focusing on interpersonal violence and possibly some self-directed violence. When we speak about interpersonal violence, we're talking about violence which occurs between family members, intimate partners, friends, acquaintances, and strangers. And this could include the mistreatment of children, youth violence like gang activity. It includes violence against women in terms of intimate partner and sexual violence. And it also includes elder abuse. And as the name suggests, self-directed violence then is that violence which is inflicted upon oneself. And here we're talking about things like suicide and self-mutilation. On the other hand, when we talk about crimes and criminal behaviors, these two can be divided into two categories. That is crimes against person and crimes against property. So crimes against persons involves the use of violence against a person, including family violence, street violence, hate crimes, kidnapping, physical assault, homicide, and sexual violence. While crimes against property they do involve unlawful acts, but they do not involve the use of violence against a person. And examples of this would be break and entering, farm theft, vandalism, and theft. And throughout our workshops, we expect that both of these categories of violence will be featured. Okay, so from my understanding, some researchers have been looking at climate change and the link between climate change and safety and violence for a little bit now, but the research is really quite limited. Yes, that's correct. 
We found research from academic disciplines such as psychology, sociology, political science, economics, history, and geography. So the, the research that has been done, what is it telling us? Well, the connections between climate change and violence have really been divided by researchers into two general categories, and they tend to talk about the direct connections or the indirect connections. Okay, so can you tell me a bit more about the direct connections? Direct connections between climate change and violence have mostly been related to hotter temperature and its effects on irritability, aggression, and violence. For instance, extreme heat can lead to the activities that trigger violence, such as the increased use of alcohol. Researchers have also proposed physiological changes, such as dehydration, which are then associated with mood disturbances, confusion, and anger. And finally, we can think about the ways that extreme heat can change the human behavior patterns. For example, people congregating outside because it's too hot inside, which then creates the conditions for contact crime to occur. And this is actually quite similar to what led to a disproportionate number of deaths among the elderly during the Chicago heat wave that we've been telling you about throughout the podcast so far, where many of the older people, they opt to stay inside to avoid being exposed to criminal activity. What about some of the indirect connections between climate change and violence, for example? Yes. This one is a bit more complex, as this is where other types of factors begin to come into play. Firstly, consider the aftermath of a natural disaster. What are stressful events for individuals and families and communities? And, you know, during this time, people may experience feelings of powerlessness, increased stress, and mental health problems such as PTSD. They may experience a disruption in their access to basic provisions or a loss of their social network. And this all then increases the risk for violence in the home, in the neighborhood, or in the community. And, you know, while this research is limited, there's actually evidence of increased domestic and family violence, child abuse and neglect, and sexual violence in the aftermath of natural disasters. Right. Yeah, you're right. This was highlighted in the excerpt that was read earlier about the bushfires in Australia, right? Yes. And extreme weather events leading to disasters are only one of the climate change effects to be concerned about. You know, we can also think about climate change effects that negatively impact vulnerable economic sectors, resulting in a lot of social and psychological pressure and the loss of income for individuals working in these sectors. And these types of impacts can be triggered by not just climate change extremes, but also changes to climate variability. For example, instead of thinking about just natural disasters like storms and hurricanes, We can also think about things like changes to precipitation patterns and temperature increases, which can negatively affect agricultural production. And this, in turn, negatively affects livelihoods that people depend on to survive or to build up their family assets. Or we can also think about climate change mitigations and how a lot of the activities that we will need to do in order to mitigate the impacts of climate change and reduce greenhouse gases can lead to job losses in a lot of economic sectors, like the oil industry, for example. Right. And I understand that this can have effects on child and adolescent development, right? Yes. So you see, some researchers have actually proposed that intense and extreme weather, water shortages, and other impacts associated with climate change, they actually have an effect on food production and distribution, 
which can contribute to the environment and the conditions necessary that increase the risk of adolescents and children developing into violent-prone adults. And this is linked to factors such as poor prenatal and childhood nutrition, you know, children growing up in poverty or poor living conditions because of extreme weather events or other climate change hazards, or the high exposure to community violence at an early age, again, linked to many of these other impacts we would have discussed before. Okay. I think I'm beginning to see how the current project is really building the existing research. And while there is work being done on community safety and in the context of climate change, it clearly seems that there isn't enough and there's still a number of gaps out there regarding the risks and the different types of vulnerabilities of specific communities. You know, I'm asking these guys, I'm like, help, you know, you know, help me, you know what I mean? And, and the guys was like, I can remember him telling me, we can't help you, you know? On August 29th, 2005, Hurricane Katrina struck in New Orleans and became one of the most destructive hurricanes in US history. With winds over 190 kilometers per hour, the hurricane took the lives of approximately 1,800 people and displayed 800,000 others. It resulted in up to $81 billion in damages. While we may like to believe that natural disasters affect everyone equally, Hurricane Katrina is an excellent example of how race and class create unique risks and vulnerabilities to natural disasters. It was only years after the hurricane that stories of white vigilantes and police killing began to surface. Reports of police officers and white civilians accused of committing racially motivated violence against the black residents in New Orleans later emerged. While about 80% of New Orleans was submerged due to broken levees, Algiers Point, a mostly white neighborhood in a predominantly black region, became one of the few areas above water. White militias closed off the neighborhood and threatened to shoot black residents traveling through and around Algiers Point as they thought safety. One resident reportedly stated, anything coming up the street darker than a brown paper bag is getting shot. Despite these threats, no police reports were recorded and the police took no action. The number of people shot in and around Algier Point is still unclear. However, eyewitnesses report at least 11 people were shot following the storm. This also meant that many people could not escape to safety. In our final segment, Oishi is joining us to discuss solutions to this problem we post. So Oishi, we're beginning to see that certain communities are at an increased risk when it comes to this intersection between climate change and community safety, which begs the question, what can be done to deal with this issue? So this is where adaptation planning comes in, supported by a vulnerability and adaptation assessment. The UNDP defines adaptation as a process by which strategies that moderate, cope with, and take advantage of the consequences of climactic events are enhanced, developed, and implemented. Adaptation plans have become an important way for countries and communities to deal with the consequences of climate change. However, both our nationwide adaptation plan and individual city plans are currently not accounting for the impacts of climate change on safety and violence. What does creating adaptation plan entail? 
So a good starting point to creating an adaptation plan is conducting a vulnerability and adaptation assessment. What this assessment does is allow practitioners to evaluate how changes in the climate may affect various human and natural systems and see what kinds of options are available to respond to these effects. Then the findings from the assessment can be used to inform the creation of climate change adaptation plans. And can you clarify for us what an adaptation plan is or does? Sure. So adaptation plans are formal plans that allow countries or communities to deal with the impacts, risks, and opportunities of climate change by identifying and implementing policies and measures to address the risks posed by climate change. Okay, so back to vulnerability and adaptation assessment. I hear two words coming through there. Can you begin with the vulnerability component of the assessment? Can you tell us what you mean by that? Of course. So the IPCC defines vulnerability as the degree to which a system is susceptible to or unable to cope with adverse effects of climate change, including climate variability and extremes. So when we talk about vulnerability, we need to consider three things, exposure, sensitivity, and adaptive capacity. Exposure is the presence of people, livelihoods, resources, infrastructure, or economic, social, or cultural assets in places and settings that could be adversely affected by climate change. An example of this would be a family living in a house in a flood-prone area. We would say that this family and the house is exposed to flooding. Next, sensitivity is the degree to which a system or species is affected either adversely or beneficially by climate variability or change. If we continue with the house example, if the house has a basement, it would be more sensitive to flooding than a house that is raised or does not have a basement. And finally, adaptive capacity. This is the ability of systems, institutions, humans, and other organisms to adjust to potential damage, to take advantage of opportunities, or to respond to the consequences of climate change. If we conclude with the house example, if the family has flood insurance, then we would say that the family has a capacity to adapt to or at least cope with flooding. One thing I'd like to highlight here is that these components allow us to consider non-climactic factors that affect how climate hazards will impact human systems. Okay, that might be a lot to take in, but I'd remind everyone listening that this information is also in our background document. So non-climatic factors could be considering something like race or class. As highlighted in the story about Hurricane Katrina, the way Black residents were vulnerable to the storm and the aftermath of it were completely different than the way white people and white residents were vulnerable Yeah, exactly. It's very important that we understand that vulnerability is not equally distributed. That's why these assessments should be a collaborative process to ensure that the voices of those most marginalized are still being heard. So if someone were to ask why we should care about or assess vulnerability, how would you answer that question? I'll give you three reasons. The first is so that we can identify the greatest risks of climate change. Second is so that we can identify factors that contribute to vulnerability. And lastly, so we can determine how to best allocate resources that may be scarce. So altogether, the information about the components of vulnerability tell us how vulnerable a system is to climate change and the extent to which adaptation is possible. That sounds very much like the reason we will gather in our workshops. Yeah, exactly. So the mapping exercise is really our first step in identifying what are violence risks to certain climate change hazards and understanding who may be vulnerable to them. Is there anything else you would like to add to this? Well, I'd just like to add, if you want to learn about the stages and the steps that go into vulnerability and adaptation assessments, you should take a look at the adaptation section in our background document. 
However, while I'm here, I'll discuss stage two of the assessment because, as you've said, they do inform the workshop activities. Stage two involves investigating vulnerability, future impacts, and adaptation. We've gone over the vulnerability part quite a bit, so I'll go on straight to the future impacts. This step aims to project future risks under climate change. We should be thinking about describing risks both with or without climate change. This can be done by integrating the experiences, knowledge, and expert opinions of stakeholders, community partners, and climate change experts with documented knowledge about the impacts of climate change. And the final step is? The final step is the adaptation assessment of opportunities available to respond to climate change. These adaptation options should be assessed based on factors such as economic value and ease of implementation. It involves identifying resources and barriers to the implementation of adaptation options and identifying and prioritizing policies and programs to address current and projected risks. However, for the context of this project, we do recognize that we will be limited in how much information we can collect on this component of the assessment. This brings us to the end of our podcast. Through the various stories and the research that we shared with you, we hope that the connection between climate change and community safety has become more clear. In addition to sharing background research on climate change, community safety, and adaptation planning, we hope this podcast also provides an opportunity for you to begin reflecting on how the communities you serve may be affected by this problem. Thank you for listening.